Hey, good morning. If you're a guest with us, I want to welcome you. Thank you for being here. And uh, if you would, if you get a chance, there's a little card in the seat back that's in front of you. And if you take a moment to fill that out, uh, we'd appreciate it. Um, if you're a guest, you may not be aware that when you write a prayer request on that card, um, it's a great way to get connected and learn more about the church, but it's also a way for us to get the prayer requests that you have. Those get typed up and emailed out to our staff and elders, and we can be praying for you throughout the week, uh, joining you in praying for whatever's on your heart. And so if you take a moment to fill that out. Um, one of the things that we have coming up that we want to make you aware of that you can mark on your calendars is happening Sunday, uh, November the 12th. And uh, each year, we set aside a weekend for missions uh, emphasis. And so we have a lot of missions partners that we partner with all over the world, locally and globally. And we uh, have a Sunday set aside to highlight that, to celebrate it, to learn more about what God's doing in these different places. With the construction, um, we couldn't do much in the lobby space and couldn't do a whole lot to really emphasize it the way that we will probably do next year. But we did want you to participate in this missions emphasis. And so we've created a prayer guide. And it'll guide you Monday to Friday. They're on the prayer carts out here, the stands out here. You can grab one on your way out. And each day they're going to walk you through uh, one of our missions partners that you can be praying for. I think it's a really neat tool. Put on your uh, refrigerator. You can talk to your kids about missions and why it's important. And then each day you're just throughout the day going to remember one of these missionaries. The first one's Deanna Lynn, actually. And Deanna, uh, we sent from this place. We're her commissioning church and she serves in Spain. And her dad is actually going to be preaching on the 12th. Um, David is a longtime missionary, 25 years in Venezuela and a longtime personal mentor of mine. And so I'm really excited for him to be here on November the 12th uh, to preach. So mark that on your calendars, grab one of those prayer guides, and, and join us for that. Let me, let me pray for us, and we'll jump in this morning. Father, I am grateful uh, for this place. Every, every Sunday I get to drive in here and be here. It's the, it's the people. It's what you're doing. Um, we don't deserve it, and we're really grateful for it. And thank you for time to just focus on your word. There's a lot that could be pulling our attention and distracting us. We just pray for these moments to be focused uh, so that your spirit can work on us. And we'll trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know your experience, but in mine, there are many different ways that I have learned in a deeper way about the people that are closest to me. Right? The more time you spend with somebody in certain environments or doing certain things, the more you're going to learn about those people. You're going to pick up on things that you thought you knew that, wow, that wasn't what I thought. And the closer you get, the more you're going to learn, right? You can learn a lot about somebody it's, when you sit down in the car that that person's driving, right? Right away, you're going to learn a lot about a person when you're in the car that they're the driver of. You're going to learn, man, is this like an adrenaline junkie or is she so scared? I did it again. I said, <laughs> first service, I, I really did. That's not planned. Like I was kind of reverse them in third service. This is the one on the internet. Like, I'm not trying to be cliche. Uh, anyway, uh, you can learn a lot about somebody when you're driving with them. And I had a friend one time, and this, I don't ride in the car with him anymore at all, uh, because he had this habit of continuing to maintain eye contact with you when he talked to you while driving the car. Like, hey, what'd you say? Like, like what are you doing? Stop. Uh, he would constantly look at us while he was driving, and so I don't ride in the car with him anymore. You learn a lot about someone in the car. You learn a lot about somebody when you go to their home, and you visit in their home, and you just go look at the bookshelves in their house. What are they reading? What's important to them? What, what, what are the books that are informing the way that they see the world and the way they think about things? What are their interests? What's important to them? If they have bookshelves, right? Most people don't. So maybe it's like 
figuring out who they follow on social media or their, their web search history. And you'll learn quite a bit about a person based on what they're allowing to influence their mind and shape their heart. You can learn a lot about them. One of the most powerful ways to learn about somebody is to live with them. And all the married people said, amen, right? And what you thought you knew, you had no idea, right? Like they seemed neat and clean, right? And they're not. Wow. And you learn a lot the more you live with somebody. So maybe you're not married. So think about this. Think about your college roommate. The person that you lived in a 10 by 10 cell with on the campus of whatever school you went to, right? And you go in and maybe you didn't know that person and you just got matched up with them and you learned them quicker. Maybe you went with somebody that you knew or at least you thought you knew until you lived with them, right? And everything changed. For me, I thought I knew the guy that I was going to room with my first year of college. We had moved a thousand miles away from home. We were um, on this campus for the first time. We're the only people each other knew and we're in this dorm room and I quickly learned this is not the guy I thought that I knew, right? In some weird ways. Like he had this habit of waking up at six o'clock in the morning, no matter the day. Did not matter the day. Didn't matter if there was no class, no practice, no nothing. We had a day off. It didn't matter. He's going to wake up at 6 a.m. and he's going to cook a Pop-Tart <laughs> on a toaster on, his, on the top of his desk, and he's going to eat that Pop-Tart without closing his mouth. <laughs> and we're not friends anymore, <laughs> right? Or the same guy, he went to a yard sale locally. I, I'm not making this up. Wakes up on the one day that I can sleep in. The one day he didn't cook the Pop-Tart, right? And he goes to a local yard sale, and he comes back with what he purchased, proceeds to put it together. Wasn't there when I went to bed the night before as I'm sleeping in the top bunk. And all of a sudden, he starts playing a drum set that he had just bought at a yard sale, just smashing on it. And I wake up, and that drum set wasn't there last night. There it is, and he bought it for the sole purpose of waking me up, all right? So you learn a lot about somebody when you live with them, and what you appreciate, what you don't appreciate. I think the most powerful thing that you learn from people, right, the, the way that you learn about what is most important to a person's heart, what they value more than anything else, is through their prayers. Those rare moments when you get to listen in on somebody having a conversation with God tells you about their heart maybe more than anything else does. You learn about what they think about God as soon as they start praying. You learn about what they think God thinks about them as you continue to listen to that prayer develop. You learn quite a bit about somebody as they're praying and as they're learning things. Do they talk to God like a robot? Are they just fearful because they think God is always angry at them? And so the way that they pray and interact with him or on those occasions when you sit with somebody and you are convinced in that moment that they have walked into the throne room of God and they have this intimate relationship with their heavenly father and listening to them pray just draws you closer to God. You can learn a lot about somebody with their prayers. A.W. Tozer has this famous line where he says, the most important thing about a person is what comes into their mind when they think about God, which is partially true. But C.S. Lewis would go on to expound on that, and he would say this. He said, that is only true insofar as the person already understands what God thinks about them. So when you know what God thinks about you, and you understand the way that God feels about you, then when you think about him, the first thing that comes into your mind as you begin to think about him, knowing what he thinks about you, will shape and influence you profoundly. You begin to talk to him with that understanding of how much he loves you and cares for you and wants to have that relationship with you, and that shapes the way that you pray. So let me ask you this question as we get started this morning. What would your prayer life teach people about you? If they could listen to your prayers... 
listen to the way that you talk to God or how you talk to God? Would they learn really quickly about what you think about God and who you think he is? Would it just be this rigid, routine prayer that you pray because you've got to check it off the list and you're a little more superstitious than the next person? Would they learn that you think that God's mad at you and so you kind of tremble lightly? Or would they learn some personal things about you too? Would they learn as you prayed that you are really, really concerned with you? That your prayers are consumed with a lot of personal pronouns. You talk a lot about yourself and you ask God for more and more and more. I want this. I need this. I want this. Or maybe they'll listen to you pray and you're like, well, I pray for people a lot. I pray for other people all the time. And they'd say, yeah, man, it sounds like they pray for other people a ton. But God in that equation seems like a means to an end. And the end is the person they're praying for is health, their prosperity, their comfort. What would your prayer life teach people about you? This prayer that we're going to study is we're in John's gospel in chapter 17 this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John 17. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. You can grab that. That's our gift to you. And like always, if you want a nice one, go to the Lost and Found. Okay? We're in John 17. We started in John chapter 1 at the beginning of the year. and We've been journeying through John's gospel. That'll come to a close at the end of November. And we'll do a a short Christmas series looking at um, some Old Testament stuff. Um, and then we will uh, launch into a new series. But John 17 today, we get to listen into a prayer of Jesus. It's the longest prayer that we know that is recorded of his. And we can oftentimes read this like a textbook. Oh, I've read John 17. I know that high priestly prayer. I know what that prayer is all about. But really, think about this. What would it have been like to be one of the disciples? I mean, really, put all your church tradition and history aside just for a minute. Don't treat this like another textbook. You're journeying with him. You have this incredible meal with him where he's telling you that he's about to die. He washes your feet. Your world is kind of turned upside down. He starts to teach you about he's the vine and you're the branches. And he starts to tell you that the Holy Spirit's going to come. And when the Spirit comes, he's going to be your guide and he's going to have to leave. And then all of a sudden he pauses on this night and he begins to pray and you get to hear his prayer and you get to learn what's most important to him on this prayer. Now, I don't know if you guys have had this experience, but as a pastor, one of the honors of my life, and I mean this with all sincerity, it's not being on a stage, it's not any of the leadership stuff, none of that stuff. What, what I value so much is people. And I've sat in a lot of rooms, and I, I'm not going to break confidence, but I've sat in a lot of rooms with people who knew they were about to die. And I've got the, the great privilege of sitting there know with me knowing and them knowing and on a few occasions they were cognitive to understand this is coming to a close and to listen to them pray in those moments it's life-changing the clarity imagine what would you ask for if you knew if you knew this is it what would your prayer sound like because this is what we get to listen in on with jesus we get to listen to what is most important to him when he knows in just a little while he's going to be killed And so what he prays for as he talks to God on this all-important night should reflect in our prayer life. Look, you're not going to get everything out of this that applies to you. Some of it is unique to Jesus as we study this. But I heard one preacher say this, and I really appreciated it. He said this, if Jesus prayed like this on the last night of his life, should we not pray like this every day of ours? I thought that's really profound. We're going to break it into three different sections here this sermon is broken into three different pieces, and I'm not going to have you stand today because we're doing the three different sections. We're going to cover all of John 17. 
Jesus shifts his prayer life three different times in this prayer. And it it's, teaches us quite a bit. The first thing that Jesus prays for on this night is himself. He prays for himself, but not the way that you think. John chapter 17, verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all of those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. It's a lot of language there that can be a little confusing. But Jesus opens up this prayer, and it might actually sound a little bit weird that he begins praying, and his request in these first five verses is, God, would you give me glory? Glorify me. Now, this is what I meant when I said there's certain parts of this prayer that do not apply to you, okay? We don't open our prayer, God, will you just make much of me? Like, that's not, that's not how we open our prayers. But we do learn something profound here. The first thing is this, Jesus is asking for glory because he knows what's about to happen. God, would you glorify me on the cross and in the resurrection so that in doing so, you would get the glory? Now, let's pause here. What is glory? A few weeks back, we defined it. Glory means heavy. It means weighty. It means important. So if something is to receive glory in that moment, it's the most important thing. It gets all the attention. It's what's highlighted. Something that gets glory is the heaviest thing in that topic, in that conversation, in whatever, that season of life. This is getting the glory. So when Jesus says, Father, would you glorify me? What he's saying is, would you in this moment make me the heaviest thing, the most important thing, so that in doing so, Father, you would be the heaviest thing. That when people see what I'm about to do on the cross and in the resurrection, they would glorify you. They would make much of you. And you learn Jesus' motives. See, he asks for something personally. And as the prayer develops, you realize the motivation of the request is the glory of God. Can the same be said of us? When we open up our prayers and we make requests, and hear it, please hear me, you're allowed to do that. I'm not sitting here saying, don't ever pray for yourself. It's dangerous. I'm, you can ask God to do things in your life. You can make big requests of him. He can handle it. You can come to him and you can ask him to do things through your life, through the ministry that you serve, through the business that you own, through the church that you're a part of. You can pray for God to do really big, great things. You can say, God, I want my life to count. I want my life to matter. I want you to do something in my life, God. Would you please use me to make a difference in the lives of the people around me? Would you use the business that my family has? Would you use the church that I'm a part of? Would you please be a part of this? And, and would you receive the glory for this? But here's the thing. It's a dangerous prayer. Because I don't know about you, but there's a lot of times in my life where it is easy for me to think that I'm asking for God's glory when I'm really requesting my own. I can say, God, I want you to do something really big, and I want you to work in a powerful way through our family, through this thing that we're doing. I want, man, I just want lives to be impacted. We're going to open the doors of our home, and we're going to have hospitality. We're going to love people. We're going to care for them. Would you just use us to make a difference? But wait, is that for me, or is that for God? And maybe you've wrestled with that. So how do you know? How do you know when you make a big request of God, if you're seeking your glory or his? You're like, I don't know how to know, but I can tell you I'm not going to ask anymore because I can't figure this out. It's a hard question. J.D. Greer is a pastor, and he wrote an article. And in the article, he gave two really good reasons or really good ways for you to detect whose glory you're actually seeking. I really appreciated these. He said this, if God chose to answer that prayer that you're praying, okay? So he decided, yeah, I'm going to pray 
this big prayer, God, would you use the ministry I'm a part of to just impact the world? And God said, oh, yeah, I'm going to use it, but I'm going to impact the world the way you want the world impacted, but I'm not going to use you to do it. How would you feel? If the very thing you were asking God to do through you, he chose to do it, but not through you, would you be okay with that? Because in that moment, it reveals to you whose glory are you seeking? Do you really want God to be glorified? Because he'll accomplish his purposes. He might not use you to do it. The second thing I thought was really good is this. If God chose to answer your prayers, if he said, yes, I'm going to answer the prayer, I'm going to work the way that you're asking me to work, I'm going to bless the way that you're asking me to bless, but in order to get it, you have to suffer, would you still pray that prayer? In order for you to get the request that you're asking of God to be accomplished and for God to get the glory and for the impact to be made, in order for that to happen, you have to go through a season of suffering and difficulty. Would you still pray that prayer? Because in that moment, it reveals whose glory you're seeking. Because you realize that the most impactful things that the followers of Jesus do in this world are a response to suffering. And that's a dangerous prayer a season of difficulty and hardship that would give God glory that you would have to endure, would you still pray for that? When you pray for yourself, let me ask you this. Do you ask God for what you want, or do you ask him to do what he wants? When I'm praying for my life and for me, am I asking God just for what I want, or am I asking God to do what he wants with my life? It's a big difference. And you learn, as you listen to this first part of Jesus' prayer, John 17, that the glory of God was the most important thing to him, so much so that he was, in fact, willing to suffer, and he would, so that the Father would get the glory. He shifts his prayer now from praying for himself to praying for the people that were closest to him, uh, this group of disciples that had been journeying with him for uh, a number of years. He's got the 12 minus 1, and you're going to see the minus 1 pretty clearly in the prayer. It's going to be the 11 disciples minus Judas. So those 11 disciples that are so close to him, he begins to pray for those immediately close friendships that he has with these disciples. And look at how he prays for them. I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those that you've given to me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name that you gave me. No one has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so the scriptures would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me, sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they may be truly sanctified. So he shifts his prayer, and he's praying for these close friendships, these disciples that he has with him. I want to pause there for a minute and just give you this truth, because it's, it's impacted me. 
The same thing that Jesus is doing here for the close disciples, the 11 disciples, and then in the third section, how he will pray for all that would ever follow him. The same thing he's doing in those moments. He's interceding on their behalf. He's going to God on their behalf, asking God to work in their life. That same thing he's doing here in John 17, he continues to do to this day. Romans chapter 8, verse 34, and Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, both tell us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf right now. So let that sink in, that right now, if you're a follower of Jesus, he intercedes to God on your behalf. And when he does, that prayer that he's praying shows you what's important to him. What's important to Jesus as he prays for the people that are closest to him? Well, this is, we kind of talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago. What's most important to Jesus when he looks at these 11 disciples, the people that are closest to him, is not praying for them that they would get that comfort that they had sought. Like, God, would you just give them that beachfront property there, you know, on the Sea of Galilee? It'll be used for ministry, I promise. But like, can, like God, would you just give them this? Like, they just need, that's not what he does. What he says is this, God, I'm leaving, and it's going to get really hard for them. Because this whole time I've been with them, I've been protecting them. And I've been protecting them by the power of your name. You gave me the name Jesus, Messiah, Christ. You gave me that name and with it the authority and the power to protect them spiritually. And I've guarded them the whole time that I've been here. But Father, I'm coming back to be with you and life is going to get really, really hard for them. Because I won't be there to protect them. So he says, but I want you to protect them by the power of your name. Through the work of the Spirit, I want you to protect them in this world that's going to beat them up and make it really, really hard. And then he begins to tell them, hey, I don't want you to take them out of this place, though. That's what's fascinating. It's a scary thing. He says, God, I don't want you to take them. He literally says, I am not asking you to take them out of the world. That's not what I want, God. I want you to send them into the world. I want them to be in the world but I don't want them to be overly influenced and harmed by the world. This is where we get the phrase. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The popular phrase that's not actually in the Bible, that we want believers to be in the world, but not of the world. That phrase isn't really there, but the concept comes from this prayer in John 17. And we think of it like a boat, right? You want the boat to be on the water. A boat was designed to be on water. In the same way, 2 Corinthians 5 says that when you become a Christian, you're a new creation and you are God's ambassador. An ambassador is sent into a place to represent. That's what we're designed for as Christians. Not to be taken from the world, but to be sent into the world. You just don't want in that boat, on that water, too much of the water to get into the boat. It doesn't work well. And so Jesus' prayer is that. God, I don't want so much water to get into the boat. I want you to protect them spiritually and prepare them scripturally. I want that to be what happens for them. That's what he's praying. He gives them two ways that the water won't get into the boat. The first is this. He says, I want them to be protected spiritually by you. Would you protect their spirits from the evil one as we send them into this world? So the Holy Spirit will spiritually guard and seal and protect your life as you live in a pretty dark world. And how will he do it? He says, then I want you to sanctify them, God. And all sanctify means is that you want to become more like Jesus. So you allow the Spirit to continue to allow you to become more like Jesus. That's what the word means. And so as you're becoming more like Jesus, how do you do that? He says, I've given them your word. Sanctify them in the truth. So use the truth to help them become more like me, Father. And the way they do that is your word, meaning this. Jesus prayed for his closest friends walking into a dangerous world to have an intimate, complete and total fascination and love for God's word. 
to devour it, to hide it deep in their hearts, to memorize it, to let it be so much a part of their life that it continually shapes them and allows the Spirit to use it to protect them. This is how he prayed for his disciples. Sanctify them. So we learn from his prayer, as he's praying for the people closest to him, that what's most important to him for them is their spiritual development, their spiritual maturity. So let me ask you this. Do you pray the same way? When you pray for the people that are closest to you in your life, do you pray for God to protect them and provide for them and prepare them? Because for Jesus, I'd say it this way. Jesus asked God to keep them protected spiritually and prepared scripturally. That was his number one concern for the people that were closest to him. When you pray for the people closest to you, is that how you pray? Let me ask this. Anyone who's a parent in the room, is this how you pray for your kids? You pray God protect them spiritually and prepare them scripturally. Because I know far too many people that are far too concerned with the the future that their kids have in education and in their career and in their comfort. And it becomes the primary objective of the conversation in the home is the school you're going to go to, the job you're going to have, and the way you're going to provide. Go, 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 go. Build, build, build. American dream, American dream. And do we ever pause to pray, God, uh, or I have the opposite too. I have a lot of people that I know pray that God would take them out of the world, protect them, hide them, create the bubble. And neither one of those are what Jesus does here. Neither one of them. So let let me use my own family as an example here. I'll, I'll tell you this. There's no guarantee that any of my kids will play a professional sport. There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee that any of my kids are going to play a college sport. That can be taken away like that. There is no guarantee that my kids are going to go and be at the top of their class, that they're going to run their own business one day, or that they'll run for office and serve in that capacity. None of that is guaranteed for my kids or for yours. But you know what is guaranteed? Every single one of my kids, all four of my kids that I love dearly, what's guaranteed for them is that when they die, they will go to heaven or hell. And I want them to be ready for that reality. And Jesus did too. And so when he prays for those who are closest to him, he does not just ask for comfort or for wealth or for success. He says, God, they're going to go into a really dangerous, hard world. Would you protect their spirit? And would you prepare them with your word? And now Jesus is going to shift from spending time praying for them to praying for all of us. And let's see what he says here, verse 20. It says, My prayer, though, is not only for them alone, but God, I pray for also those who will believe in me through their message when the disciples take the gospel and it spreads, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me and, they have, and that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. The world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I'm going, to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, through the wor- though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is a powerful prayer that Jesus prayed for you. And he prayed, and a lot of people get to John 17, and the first thing they want to talk about is unity, but I don't think that's where Jesus starts. So I'm studying this passage. What I'm coming to realize is he starts with love. He says, God, I pray above all else that they would know how much you love them. 
that they would realize how much you love them. And they're going to realize it when I die for them here and I resurrect from the dead. But I want them, all who would follow after me, Jesus says, to know how much that I love them, that you love them. And from that knowledge of how loved you are, from it would spring unity in the body of Christ. That unity would be a byproduct of a deep understanding of the love that God has for you. And this is how Jesus prayed for you. And think about who's following him. Think about how many opportunities there are for division. Think about this room. Just glance around the room. This is church. We're not, it's not formal. Just look around. There are so many opportunities for division in the room, from jerseys that you wear, right? right? From, like, everything. Like, why would you root for them? And I root for them, right? To the political stance that you take on things, right? There's so much opportunity. The experience you have, the job you do. I do the same job as you, but I do it different than you because I do it this way, it's better. And all of a sudden, you come in, and everything is an opportunity for us to not be on the same page. Think about the followers that were with Jesus when he was praying this prayer. You got a tax collector. You got a zealot. There is two people in one group here following after Jesus who could not be further on the political spectrum from one another. As a matter of fact, when you study history, you learn that it wasn't just this intense hatred of one another. The intense hatred boiled over into violence often where zealots wanted to kill tax collectors. And yet here they are, standing with Jesus because the things that could divide them paled in comparison to the truth that united them. The things that made them different did not compare to the thing that made them alike. The unity that they found in the truth of Jesus was far more powerful than anything that would pull them apart from one another. And the same thing is true in the church today. The things that make us different, the traditions that we come from, many of us were born in different parts of this country and in other countries. You come in with experiences. You come in with successes and failures. They give you a perspective on how the world works and what you think about the world. You come in and you have all these traditions that came from your family that formed values that informed how you see the world. Whether you're a guarded person or an open person, you're an angry person or a calm person, you're an excited person or a relaxed person. All of these things have influenced us and yet here we are and the very things that make us different pale in comparison to the one thing that unites us together. And that was the prayer of Jesus, that you would come to understand if you're a follower of Jesus, how much he loves you. And when you understand that love and the deeper you get to understand that love, you would create unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not unity than love. It's love than unity. In fact, I would say it this way. Anything, any experience of division in the church happens for this reason, because in that moment, somebody valued something other than Jesus more than Jesus. Any division at all in the, in the body of Christ is caused because in that moment, somebody values something other than Jesus more than Jesus. And he told us, how do we fix that? It's not with a paradigm. It's not with some sort of policy or a program. It's John 15. Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Your only job as a Christian is to stay connected to me and I'll take care of everything else. You know how you overcome division in the church is you stay connected to the vine so that you can continue to experience the love of God and from that love, unity. And why is that important? Well, he says it three different times here in the passage, in the prayer, because then the world will look at the church and they'll know that God is real and that he's good. Growing up, I got to um, see a few different adaptations of the old H.G. Wells um, novel, The Invisible Man. Does anybody remember this, right? It, that, the novel ends horrendously, but like they made some adaptations like in movie 
So like a movie in the 30s came out, right, with the dude that like, was wrapped up like a mummy uh, when he was invisible. And then they made some other movies that weren't as good. And uh, there was a Marvel superhero that was developed out of this invisible man. Didn't really amount to much. Uh, and then they made that horrible TV show in the late 90s, right? Matt wasn't even like a twinkle in his family's eye, right? But uh, so he missed it. You missed the, the glory of this horrible TV show of the Invisible Man. And now you have new superheroes and they show up and like Miles Morales has the Spider-Man and he has the ability to be invisible. And it's cool to watch, except for the 90s show. The rest of it was really cool to watch or read about because you see the Invisible Man can go places and do things and he's not seen. And he can help people or he can harm people and commit crimes. But the only way to stop him, the only way to know that he's around is what? You got to put something on him. You throw a blanket on him, right? Or you wrap him up or you pour paint on him. And all of a sudden, what was invisible is now visible. That's what Jesus is praying for here. You remember how Paul described Jesus in Colossians chapter 1? He said, he is the image of the invisible God. Meaning, in Jesus, every invisible attribute of God was made visible for us. Everything that we wanted to know about God, we got to know in looking at Jesus. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God would say to you? Listen to Jesus. He is the image. Everything about him tells us everything about the invisible God. And now he's saying in this prayer, I'm not going to be here anymore. I will be, in many ways, invisible. And so now that I'm going to be gone, how will the world know that I'm real? And he says, it'll be because of the way you love one another. It'll be because of the way that you protect the unity of the body of Christ. And when the world watches the way that you care for one another and the way that you're united together, not uniformity, we're not cookie cutters, but in the midst of the diversity, being united under the umbrella of Jesus, when the world sees that, they'll be able to say, man, God must be good. I want to know more about that God. I'd say it this way. You make the invisible Jesus visible by how you love those on the outside and especially by the way we love and care for those that are united to Christ. Look at verse 23. He says this. When you do that, then they will know. When they live that way, God, when they know how much you love them and out of that love they're united to one another, then the world will know that you sent me. So does your experience in church and the unity and the love that you experience in your life Does it make an invisible Jesus visible to a watching world? When you pray for your life and your church family, do you pray? Not just for a building, not not for, but do you pray, God, would you take this body of believers that I'm a part of? And because we love one another so much, would you show a watching world that they can believe that you're good? By the way, we care about each other and love one another and love and welcome other people. If that's not true of your life, let me ask you this. What are you praying for? What are you praying for? Father, we thank you for Jesus. I'm overwhelmed by the depth of this prayer. It's easy to read it and just move on, and yet it's just been racking my brain and my heart for the last couple of weeks. Just to know, after reading his prayer, what was important to him. But above all else, he desired you to be glorified, that when he prayed for whatever he was asking for, God, he wanted you to be the heaviest and most important thing. And Father, that when he prayed for the people he loved the most, it wasn't just to rescue us from difficulty, but to allow the way that we live in the midst of it to be protected and lived out in a way that brought you glory. 
So, Father, however you want to do that, whether it's here at New Hope or somebody else, we're just grateful that you'll be glorified. And, God, we're willing to suffer for that. We're willing to go through seasons of difficulty for your glory because it's worth it. And, Father, as we think about the unity and the love that we've experienced in this church family, that only comes when we truly understand how much you love us and how much you care for this church. And so from the place of understanding that love, would you let unity flow out of us? And we'll trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.